Isaiah 4. Uh, last week we finished off verse 1 of uh, chapter 4, which is really part of the previous section. So we're picking up in verse 2, and then it's a little ch- tiny little chapter. We'll just go through to ch- verse 6 at the end of the chapter. So, Isaiah 4, verse 2. We'll read through, we'll pray, and then we'll study. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and the rain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and I pray that as we come now and consider this passage that you would uh, enable us, Lord, to understand it and, Lord, enable us to, uh, to be impacted, Lord, by, by this passage of Scripture, that you might have your way with us, changing us and moulding us and making us what you want us to be. Amen. Man. Well, it seems as if we're coming to a crucial point of Isaiah now. We started the book in chapter 1, where the wickedness of uh, Judah was declared and decreed, and they were called upon to uh, turn from their unfaithfulness. And then once that introduction had happened, then we came to chapter 2 and we saw the glory that was to come. And really, chapters 2, 3, and 4 are a section that really gets wrapped up a little bit tonight. In that chapter 2 began with the uh, revelation of the glory of Jerusalem in the latter days when God has done his work, redeemed his people, and everything has been established. And then we were taken back to see how bad the situation was in the day of Isaiah, and how bad it will be in the days of judgment, the day of the Lord. And ultimately, we come now to chapter 4 and verse 2, which is the concluding of the day of the Lord. Notice it starts in verse 2, in that day. We've seen that already, haven't we? We've seen that in chapter 3 and verse 18, in that day. And then going back a little further on as well, it was that particular day that was the day of the Lord. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, in that day. And before that, chapter 2, verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. And so we have God's day. Not Sunday, but the Lord's Day, the day of judgment, the period of judgment. And there will be judgment that happens. And again, in that day, 
And so the day of the Lord is the day of judgment, but it also seems to conclude um, the period of um, it seems to conclude the period of uh, the restoration at the end as well. And so we have here um, the same day, the, the, the day of the Lord, as it comes to an end now, we have the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Now the branch of Yahweh um, is a, something that is mentioned here for the first time. He's going to develop this whole theme a whole bunch more. Now, some people translate this branch. Others will translate it shoot. Um, some people have argued that branch isn't the right word because branch comes from a tree, whereas this is something that comes out from the ground. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really not too bothered about the details. You can call it a shoot or a branch, whatever you like. But the point is that this is something that God divinely will bring about. And the one who is the branch... He's the branch of the Lord, the shoot, the shoot of the Lord. He comes from the Lord. And he shall be beautiful and glorious. And as Isaiah develops this theme, and we've got a little while to wait, but when we get to chapter 11, you could turn there very briefly now. But when you get to chapter 11, you have the reign of the branch. And we're given a whole bunch more detail about the branch the, and who this branch is and we can just give you a little preview now by saying that the branch is the messiah he is the divine one and as as uh isaiah develops this in chapter 11 he uh, makes it very clear that the branch is separate from yahweh and yet the branch is himself divine it's interesting that the same word is used in Jeremiah 23 verse 5 and 33 verse 15. And there the branch is going to be a king. In Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 8, the branch is the servant of Yahweh. That's picking up from what uh, Isaiah will develop later, that he will talk about the, the servant, the righteous servant. And Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12 again tells us more about the branch and it's very clear that he is a man. And those four references to the branch, to the Messiah, the Messiah using that term, funnily enough co correspond with the four Gospels. Matthew's Gospel emphasizes the kingship of Jesus and him being the Davidic king, as with the Zechariah passages. In uh, in, uh, sorry, in the Jeremiah passages. In the Zechariah passages, he's referred to as a servant, which was the, one of the key themes of Mark's gospel, that he is ma a man, which is one of the key themes of Luke's gospel. And here in Isaiah, the emphasis is that the branch is divine, which is one of the key emphasis of John's gospel. And so these various aspects of the Messiah are picked up by the different gospel writers. But we're going to talk a lot more about the branch when we come to chapter 11. At this point, we simply want to note that the branch or shoot of Yahweh, he's going to come and he shall be beautiful and glorious. And as a result, we're told the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And so the land finally will bring forth her fruit. Notice we've, we've had this theme going right the way through Isaiah, haven't we? The theme of eating. The idea being that they will be obedient and they will be 
eating the fruit of the land that was promised to them, or else they themselves will be eaten. They will be devoured by their enemies. And here, it's no accident that the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors. So the survivors or the remnant of Israel, those who are going to be there in that day, um, they will have the, the, the privilege, the honor, the pleasure of being able to have the fruit of the land. And that's a deliberate allusion to uh, Genesis chapter 1 and the fruit in the Garden of Eden. That there'll be this time of restoration when they will have fruit once again, the fruit of the land, and it will be the remnant of survivors for whom, uh, who will receive that blessing. Now we need to just kind of catch up with our context here because this is important. Throughout chapter three and most of chapter two, we've been talking about the day of the Lord. We've been talking about this time of judgment. Isaiah has occasionally flitted back to his present day, but then he keeps coming back to the day of the Lord. And in the day of the Lord, there is all of this judgment that is coming against the people. It's going to come against um, the, well, as he said in chapter two, those who are proud and lofty, those who are lifted up. And it's very clear that that's Israel from the context that follows. And so God is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. There, he, he's taking away from them their support and supply. He's taking away their bread and their water. There is this judgment that is coming upon Israel. And then with that in mind, when we see finally in that day, here in chapter 4, they will get to have the fruit of the land, those who have survived. So there is this purging of Israel where Israel is, is judged and Israel is punished, but yet at the end, there are survivors. Now, we're used to Isaiah telling us things and then the New Testament developing on it. But this concept of the remnant is developed later on in the Old Testament. And you might want to turn with me to this one, but let's turn to Zechariah 13. If you can't find Zechariah, just go to the Matthew. Start with the New Testament and then go back a little bit. Just a couple of books. Zechariah 13. In Zechariah 13, we have um, very similar themes. I have to be very careful here. I could easily teach Isaiah thir uh, Zechariah 13 for the rest of the night because it's a wonderful passage. But let's try and skim it. When we see at the beginning of chapter 13 the reference to on that day, that's not the first time. You go back to chapter 12, verse 11, on that day. Chapter 12, verse 6, on that day. Chapter 12, verse 8 as well, actually, on that day. Chapter 12, verse 3, on that day. So again, we have this, this repetition of this day of the Lord and what's going to happen. And chapter 13 tells us on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. You're seeing New Testament themes that are going to be picked up and developing in this, this, uh, this point. Um, but it is Israel specifically for whom is the day of judgment and Israel specifically who are going to be cleansed from their sin ultimately. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so they shall be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. 
And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. He will say, I am no prophet, I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I've received in the house of my friends. So there's going to come an end to idolatry and an end of prophecy in the land. And again, I won't get too distracted. But I do want to note from verse 7 and following. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who stands next to me declares the lord of hosts and so the sword is awaking the sword is rising up against the man so a human who stands next to yahweh i think you know who we're talking of here he is the shepherd the good shepherd and then we're told, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so as Moses struck the rock, and that represents the striking of the rock, the branch, the righteous one, suffering servant, the shepherd, he's struck, and then the sheep are scattered. And then he says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. And so we see that following the death of Christ, there's been this period of time when Israel has again been in blindness and God will, will turn his hand against them. In the whole land, declares Yahweh, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third will be left alive. So when God, after he has allowed the shepherd to be struck, the death of Christ at Calvary, the shepherd's sheep, that's Israel, are scattered that's the worldwide dispersion that happened following the destruction of jerusalem in 70 a.d and following and then at some point he turns his hand against them that's the day of the lord and what's going to happen is that two-thirds of them will die in the time of tribulation and one-third will survive just to give you a picture of how se severe and significant that is in the holocaust in World War II, it's estimated that six million Jews died. That was one-third of all living Jews. In the tribulation, in the day of the Lord, two-thirds of all living Jews will die. That's how severe the persecution of the Jews, the judgment of the Jews will be. But it doesn't end there. Look at what happens in the next verse. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. So in other words, there are two separate things going on. There's two separate things going on in this, in this uh, period of time. That with the judgment upon Israel in the time of tribulation, two thirds of them will be wiped out. They will be killed. But the third that remains through that same period of judgment will be purified. And the result of that is seen in the next section. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, Yahweh is my God. What's going to happen is that there will be a restoration of the people of Israel. And we know 
with the benefit of hindsight now, that that cannot happen without their acceptance of the gospel and their acceptance of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So the period of tribulation will, will essentially wipe out two-thirds of living Jews, but the third that remain will be saved. And guys, I need you to see again and again here that the things that are said in the New Testament are not new so often. When Paul says at the end of Romans 11, when he talks about the future of Israel, and he says, and thus all Israel will be saved, he's not come up with anything new. He's simply saying what Zechariah is saying here. That when the time of tribulation comes to an end, the Jews that have survived will be the Jews that believe. There is two things going on. There is the judging of God, and through that judgment, there is the refining work of God. And just as Paul takes his lead from Zechariah, I believe in that, so as we turn back to Isaiah, we see just how much Zechariah took his lead from Isaiah. And it's very typical, by the way, what Zechariah does there, in that he's, he's taking what Isaiah says and expanding on it, and he has further revelation. Isaiah simply tells us that there will be survivors. Zechariah tells us specifically what percentage the survivors will be. But they will be ones, as Isaiah says here, who the fruit of the land shall be their pride and honor. They will get to benefit from living in the land in the time of glory. So moving on to verse 3, having spoken about Messiah and about his, uh, his, his being there and the, the land, that summary of verse 2, verse 3 now looks more at these survivors specifically. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. He will be called holy. And that's a fascinating statement. Because when we started off the book of Isaiah in chapter 1 and verse 4, we're told as an initial statement of judgment, it says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken Yahweh, and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. And so the, the word holy referring to God in Isaiah is speaking in a judgmental sense that you're not holy and you've rejected the one who is holy and we're going to come to the song of the vineyard in chapter 5 next time and we're going to see the word holy used three separate times each of them being a, a, a reference to judgment against Israel God is holy and they are not but here at this one point in these chapters Israel is called holy. Now this is really, really important that we understand this because this is setting up the foundation for that key passage in chapter 6. That God, who is holy, in chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is referring back to chapter 4. The one who is holy brings judgment, he purges and cleanses, but there is a transforming holiness where those who remain are made holy as he is holy. And so, he will be, everyone who remains will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life 
in Jerusalem. Recorded for life. Isn't that interesting? That's something that John picks up on in Revelation where it talks about, well, there's two books, isn't there? There's the book of life. Everybody who lives, name is in the book of life. And if we don't have faith, if we don't believe, then our names are blotted out from the book of life. But there is the Lamb's book of life. You see, everybody who has ever lived has lived. They've been in the book of life. They've been alive. But there's a life that the Lamb gives that's a different kind of life. It's an eternal life. And here we see the same theme, the same concept, that those people who have been recorded as having life, as having life from God, eternal life, these are the ones that will be called holy. These are the ones that will enjoy the fruit of the Lamb. Uh, the fruit of the land, rather. And so, in um, verse 4, this will happen when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. And these two groups referred to here refer back to the previous chapter. You remember at the end of chapter 3, in the first verse of chapter 4, there were these women, the uh, wives, we think, of the uh, leaders of that day. And those women uh, were being condemned. And now we're told that the filth of the daughters of Zion will be removed. We know that's them because in chapter 3, verse 16, when the judgment comes, Yahweh said, because the daughters of Jerusalem are haughty. The daughters of Jerusalem received judgment, but now their filth has been washed away. The other group that's mentioned there, it says he cleansed the bloodstains from Jerusalem. And that refers to the previous section, just before that in chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. This is the leaders who have devoured the vineyard, crushed the people, grinded, grinding the face of the poor. And so what's happened there is that God's vineyard has been crushed and devoured and destroyed, which is an analogy that's often used of blood and death and destruction. And those bloodstains that were done by those leaders are going to be cleansed from Jerusalem. And so in other words, these people are declared holy, not because God's cheated, not because it's unfair, but, but they've been declared holy because they are holy. Because God has dealt with their sin. He's removed their filth. He's removed their bloodstains. He's dealt with their sin. How has he done that? By a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. You see where Zechariah gets these themes from? The spirit of God brings judgment upon Israel and wipes two-thirds of them out. But the same spirit brings a spirit of burning like a furnace, purifying the metals, cleansing them, so that they might be declared holy at the end. And so, so many of these, you can see how Zechariah has taken these themes and developed them. And so what we have as a picture here then is we have the arrival of the branch of the Lord in verse 2, and that will lead to the land 
being as it should be, as it had been prophesied. The people who remain, the survivors, the remnant, will enjoy the land. And they will do so because God has made them holy by his spirit of judgment and burning. By removing those uh, two, the two-thirds and by purifying the third. And so the people will be able to enjoy the land. Now in verse 5... We're told a little bit more about the land. So we've gone from the Messiah to the people and now to more to the, what's going to be happening in the land in that day. And again, this is all foundational for when we come to chapter 6. Then Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by night, a cloud by day rather, and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For all, uh, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. Now this is fascinating to me. First of all, we have here the visible manifestation of the glory of God, like we had in the book of Exodus. And the cloud by day, and the smoke and the fire by night. And that will be over the entirety of the mountain, which we've seen in chapter 2, is where the temple will be. And uh, the house of the Lord, it will be established above the highest mountain upon the hills, chapter 2. And people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. So they're going to go to Mount Zion where the house of the Lord will be. And over the whole entirety of that mountain, there will be the glory and the presence of God. The glory of God will cover the earth in that day. But specifically in Zion, we will see that manifested through what the Jews used to call the Shekinah glory, that visible manifestation of God. Now, that is a strange thing to the readership of Isaiah. Why is that a strange thing? Because the glory of God was in the temple. That's where God dwelt. He was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And we've seen in chapter 2 that the house of God is going to be on the mountain. People are going to go to the house of God. They would be familiar with that concept, wouldn't they? They had to go to the temple to worship God. And so they see that in the last days when God has finished his purposes, the Messiah has come and everything is, is working out as, as it has been prophesied, what will happen is that people will go back up to the temple of God, to the house of God. But now in chapter 4, this is something very different. Surely the temple houses the presence of God. But now, the, the presence of God has left the temple and covers the whole area. <coughs> now, the presence of God is not just in the Holy of Holies, where a high priest can go one day a year, one man on one day, for one year for all the people but now wherever they meet for all their assemblies the glory of god's there you and your friends go off up the mountain to worship the lord and there is the shekinah glory for every group for every gathering for every place upon that mountain the whole area every assembly it's there so to the reader of Isaiah, I know we, you know we have hindsight. We're looking back. We see how this happened. But for the reader of Isaiah, this is radical. Why is the glory of God on the loose? Why is he not contained within the Holy of Holies? Well, he tells us, for 
Over all the glory, there will be a canopy. You know what the canopy was used for in Jewish times? It was where the wedding happened. Under the bridal canopy. All you fans of Fiddler on the Roof would know that one. Then under the canopy is where the wedding would happen and where there would be that gathering to celebrate the wedding. And that what is being said here is that there is a bridal canopy and <coughs> God's covenant relationship with his people is often spoken of in terms of a marriage. And that will ultimately be seen in Revelation chapter 19 when there is the gathering. I might just read it briefly because it's always fun to read it. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For a fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so there will be a wedding. And it is because of this covenant relationship. And I don't, uh, I don't think that specifically here we're speaking of the marriage of the Lamb. But that is an ultimate fulfillment that will happen at that time because the marriage of the Lamb is with the church. But this is a different covenant. This isn't based so much on, <coughs> well, the same covenant, it's a new covenant. But this is the restoring of the people of Israel with God. And so the, the reference to a canopy, and, and if you're asking me, will there literally be a large canopy over? I don't know. Perhaps there will literally be one, or perhaps it is simply figurative. But what will be is that there will be the glory of God over that place because the people, just like the church in Revelation 19, the bride has been made clean. Here these people have had their sin cleansed. They've been made holy. And as a result, the covenant marriage relationship has been restored. And thus, God does not need to hide away. Rather, verse 6, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and, a, and for a, a refuge, a shelter, uh, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. And so there, um, verse 6 is something that people have wrestled with a lot and I haven't got a lot of good answers. But the best that I can ascertain from verse 6 is it says a contrast, contrast to verse 5. In other words, when it rains, you're still going to want to be protected from the rain. When it's the sun's in the sky, you're still going to want to have some covering from the sun. You're going to want some shade, right? We're still in human bodies at this time. We're, we're, we've got physical bodies to climb the mountain, to go and worship. And we're going to need shelter from sun and shelter from rain. But we won't need shelter from the glory of God. That's the point. That's the dramatic irony. 
is that we're going to have human bodies that still feel the sun, feel the rain. And yet Moses, who was told, you cannot see me or you will surely die. Moses, who saw the glory of God pass by, but was protected and hidden in the cleft of the rock, that that is no longer needed. Why? Because God has cleansed his people. And so, <clears throat> we have this entire section where God says in chapter 2 he's going to keep his covenant and on that basis he urges them to walk with him. He deals with the sin that they're committing, the sin that will be dealt with on the day of the Lord and ultimately these sins specifically will be cleansed, washed away by the Spirit of God working through that day of judgment so that at the end the shoot, the branch of Yahweh will be there in the land and that the glory of God will cover that place. That's the faithfulness of God. That God takes his people and he transforms them to keep his covenant with them. And that, my friends, is the basis of the entirety of chapter 6. When we come to chapter 6, we've got one more chapter first, which is going to be crucial. We'll talk a little bit about how that fits into the whole thing. But in this famous, famous chapter in chapter 6, when Isaiah has his vision, it really chronologically starts the book. This is, this is the kickoff. This is Isaiah saying, this is how I came to be a prophet. I saw this vision of the Lord high and lifted up. So why have we have five chapters before then? because he's laying everything out for us so that when we see him upon a throne, we know where the throne is. When we see him holy, we know how that holiness has come about. When we see him high and lifted up, we know that the others who were lifted themselves up have been lowered down. And when we see the removal of sin by the coal from the seraphim, we understand the transforming holiness of God. And when he gives Isaiah his message, and the people won't hear because they have become blind and deaf like the idols they worship. We understand that because we've seen their idolatry. We have all the background that we need other than the song of the vineyard in chapter 5, which is the basis of so much that is to follow. But the glory is to come and that is what we are looking forward to. That day when Messiah comes and when the promises to Israel are fulfilled. A little bit shorter today, but it was just a few verses and we didn't want to get into chapter 5. So let's pray and let's, uh, let's close. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this, uh, this passage of scripture. It's, uh, Lord, it's a good reminder to us all always that your covenant cannot be broken, that your promises are true, and that you will do all it is that you have promised. That when your people sin, there are consequences, but you remain faithful. And Father, we thank you that you will restore your relationship with Israel, you'll keep your promises to them. And Lord, we're thankful that your promises to us, your covenant with us is an unbreakable one. That those that you call 
you justify, those that you justify, you glorify, so that we know that we are yours forever and that we will worship you on the hill in that day. Amen.